You're listening to K-Squid, Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. Many voices, community radio. This is Story Behind the Story. I'm your host, Clara Shirley Appel, and my guest today is Zaina Arafat. Zaina is a Palestinian-American journalist and fiction writer whose work centers the Arab diaspora. Her stories and essays have appeared in The Atlantic, The Washington Post, The Christian Science Monitor, NPR, and a slew of other publications. Her debut novel, You Exist Too Much, came out in June, and it's the topic of our conversation today. It explores the painful sense of alienation that comes with being caught between two worlds and two identities, and the pain of feeling like you don't belong anywhere. Zaina Arafat, welcome to Story Behind the Story. Thanks so much for having me. So tell me about this book. What was the seed of the story for you, and how did it change as you developed it? So the the story began with a sort of question, which was, why would something that was off in the distance and unattainable be potentially more appealing than something that was right in front of you and that was Mm. attainable? As I was pondering this question and wondering, like, what kind of person, I suppose, would prefer something unattainable versus something attainable, I began by first sort of locating that question in love. And that theme of unattainability plays out in one sense um, on that level, where the character sets her sights on people that she can't have. And then as I, you know, reflected on it more, it spoke to a larger kind of cultural, political reality of being Palestinian, which this Mm. character is Palestinian-American. And of course, for Palestinians, unattainability is, is just a way of life where you are you know, we're attaining statehood, attaining self-determination, attaining basic human rights. These things are, and, you know, the right to move freely, these things are unattainable and they are just constantly something that you're longing for and, you know, basically fighting for. So uh, that question of, um, or that theme of unattainability is really where this book started. And I brought in, you know, other, uh, larger themes, including like sexuality and um, just cultural identity, those were woven in as the question and its investigation grew. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about that, that sort of theme of unattainability. And you mentioned sort of how it relates to this struggle for Palestinian statehood. Because one of the things I find interesting is that the narrator's response to this, the story that you're telling through her love addiction is very much about the ways that she minimizes herself and makes herself smaller Mm -hmm. in the world. Can you tell me about that experience and how that relates? Yeah, absolutely. So as you said, um, love addiction, right? This is, I was thinking a lot about, um, you know, in, in kind of exploring what kind of person would set their sights on, you know, things that were unattainable. Um, I think it became clearer to me that that kind of person might also have impulses towards um, self-negation in a way, Mm. because in the case of, you know, love addiction, um, you're sort of pouring yourself unilaterally, asymmetrically into another person um, who isn't even really, you know, a real actual person. It's just a fantasy that Mm. one sort of has. Um, And then as I explored it, Further, it seemed to be just a way to almost take yourself out of the equation, right? Because it's not right. like a mutual relationship. 
And then in the case of, um, on that cultural level as well, I mean, there's this whole denial almost of, I mean, not even almost, there's a denial of Palestinian existence, basically. And I think that start, you start to internalize that. And when you internalize some, a reality in which you're being, your own existence is being fundamentally denied, you start to feel this, you know, your response is to take up less space, I think, you know, or that's one possible response. So these things sort of went together. And of course, you know, the character also at some point in her life had an eating disorder, right? She had anorexia, which is another way to negate one's existence. It strikes me as a very painful thing to realize about yourself too. Yeah, I think so. And I think that's part of this character's journey is to realizing that's how she's proceeding. And, you know, part of her struggle or part of her goal, I suppose, part of the goal that we're watching is, is she, can she be present in a way, in a healthy, non, non-self-destructive way in her own life? So let's talk about you a bit. Your background is in journalism, and you've covered the Middle East and issues of diaspora in nonfiction as well as in your fiction. How does the one, ex- or how does the one inform the other? How does nonfiction inform fiction, and vice versa? Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, so as a journalist, yeah, I started as a journalist. That's that's absolutely right. And I found that there were limitations with journalism. Mm. Um, one of the limitations is that you're addressing things head on in a way where, you know, you are all, either you're making an argument or you're just sort of limited to presenting, um, character or, you know, subjects within a political context, you know, or within some news, news worthy, timely way. And I found that to be frustrating because one thing that I really wanted to do or through writing was to subvert stereotypes and Mm. and common dominant narratives particularly about Arabs Um, and so what fiction allows you to do is to present characters um, take them out of a news cycle and just show them as three-dimensionalized human beings who have you know desires longings flaws you know daily activities like any things that normalize them in a way and humanize them and so and you can you know imagine them in any scenario that you choose so that's that was how I sort of leapt over into fiction was butting up against that limitation and really wanting to subvert a dominant narrative. It's really interesting to me to hear you describe like facing like facing something head-on as being a limitation what do you think that the sort of more metaphorical treatment or more um, askance <laughs> view of what these issues are brings brings to the table? Like, how does it make it richer? So, like, for example, you know, I, I, I'm Palestinian and I've just grown up reading or just watching as a million, you know, op-eds and a million, you know, just pieces of journalism and a million sort of, UN resolutions happen um, in regards to the conflict, right? The Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And I found, I haven't seen any progress. Um, Mm. And so that when I say, you know, addressing things head on, I think I mean like the traditional ways of addressing this conflict. And I think art is such a, I think art is a form of resistance 
And that's part of the impulse of, you know, trying to influence that conversation in a, in a different way. But what you asked, what's, um, how does, can you repeat exactly the last part about us, about. How does it make it richer to be able to tell this through a story instead of head on? Oh, right. So, you know, back to that um, common narrative and the ways that people have sort of sought to address it. I mean, the common narrative has a certain number of stock images that come with it, like the ones that the character sees on television when she's a child in, you know, in D.C. Images of, you know, Palestinians throwing rocks. You see things on fire. You see, you know, people waving flags. You see coffins that are being, like, carried down the street. You see all these really you know, violent and just reductive images. Mm -hmm. And so by changing the narrative, by fictional, by creating, you know, a world in which these are not the only images that you get, I think that that's the value that it adds is to, to, you know, in the same way that people have a very limited understanding and limited imagery of certain conflicts in the world and certain countries and what it takes, I think, to challenge those images is to proliferate the stories around that particular conflict or issue. So, yeah, proliferation of images and stories is the value. <laughs> the narrator in your story in You Exist Too Much is never named. Why is that? And, and what did you want to convey in that choice? So the reason that she's never named, and that was a choice that I made like later in the process of writing the book, was um, that I th- that I felt that it spoke to the theme of well, so the title of the book is "You Exist Too Much," and another way of saying that is "You Should Exist Less." Hmm. And so, by not having a name, she's sort of enacting that um, imperative, right? Where she's taking up less space on the page, and there are some interactions, some of her romantic encounters and affairs that happen throughout the book in which she has no lines of dialogue at all, where you just don't even hear her speak. Um, And that is to suggest a certain like power dynamic within that relationship. So yeah, her not having a name is part of that theme of taking up less space and existing less and her desire to self-negate. Well, before we get too far along, I think we should have you read some from the book. And I believe you're, you're, believe, you're reading from the very beginning. Yeah. Can you set it up for us before you dive in? So I'm reading from the very beginning. I'm reading from a scene that takes place in, well, I guess it, the first paragraph sort of sets it up, but is in Bethlehem when the character is 12 years old and is basically visiting with her family and is, you know, kind of heckled, <laughs> heckled by locals that are there. So I'll just read for a few minutes from the scene. In Bethlehem, when I was 12, men in airy white gowns sat at a three-legged table outside the Church of the Nativity. They ran prayer beads through their fingers and sipped mint tea in gold-rimmed cups shaped like hourglasses, steam floating off the surface and up into the bright blue sky. I walked past them with my mother and my uncle as we wandered through the holy city. One of the men called out, Haram, forbidden. For the especially devout among us, it's Haram to eat meat unless the animal has been killed in a specific way. 
haram to drink alcohol, haram for a pubescent girl to expose her legs in a biblical city. It occurred to me then that I wasn't a flat-chested kid anymore, that curves had begun to appear along the length of me. I was no longer indistinguishable from a boy child. What should we do? I asked my mother. I felt a pulsing lump take shape in my throat as I noticed her teeth gritting, her jaw extended and temples shimmering. My great-grandparents' house was where we were staying and where all of my clothes were, 36 miles and three checkpoints away. I felt myself go cold. I closed my eyes and prepared to receive her reaction. I knew better than to try and preempt it with an apology. All I could do was strategically try to calm myself, to remember that the anticipation was heavier than the thing itself. I should have had more sense than to dress in such a way when we were visiting the birthplace of a prophet, albeit not our own. My mother had, and still has, a native's knowledge. She knows the rules instinctively in that part of the world, and I only ever learn them by accident. Basita, said my uncle, it's okay. My mother looked me up and down. We approached the main door of the church, and the men hissed again. My uncle ran the tips of his fingers across his mustache, then looked to my mother and me. Come, he said, I have an idea. We followed him into a gift shop just off Manger Square. He dropped a few shakels on the counter, then asked the shopkeeper if we could use his bathroom. My mother grabbed the KitKat off the shelf and tore it open, breaking apart two sticks without a second thought. My uncle dropped three more shakels on the counter. The man pointed towards the back. My uncle's master plan was that he would trade me his trousers for my Roxy surfer shorts. He went into the bathroom first, and I could hear sounds of fumbling his belt jangling as it hit the floor. He opened the door slightly and handed his pants to my mother so she could administer the swap. She then stood in front of me while I took off my shorts. Yalla, she said, her most frequently used word, hurry. I pulled on the pair of pants. They sagged on me. I had to tighten the belt buckle all the way up to the last hole and then roll the waist so that they wouldn't fall off, leaving me completely exposed. I stepped out of the bathroom and looked at my uncle. I examined my new curves against his pasty legs, gangly and covered in sporadic patches of hair, my shorts tight against his thighs like boxer briefs. It occurred to me in that moment to question why, as a man, his bare legs were somehow less troubling than mine. It was a double standard, a shame I had simply accepted until then. In acquiring my gender, I had become offensive. But as I stood in front of him, an unexpected pride began to swell inside me. I liked the way his trousers made me feel, like I could get attention from boys, from girls. I felt, for once, seen. That was a lovely reading. Thank you. Thank you. Most of the action in this book takes place in New York and then in an addiction treatment center somewhere in the Midwest. But it opens here in Bethlehem. Why is that? Because um, one of the main themes of the book well, it begins there for two reasons. One of the main themes of the book is cultural in-betweenness hmm. um, and exploring the sort of tensions around that, the awkwardness of it, the sometimes pain of it, the alienation of it, and just the humor of it in some ways, right? right. And so that is um, part of why the book begins there. Um, and also, you know, this scene is a memory one of the character's memories, and so many of her memories are set in the Middle East, and part of the book's, part of the project, I suppose, of this novel is to show how past experiences, particularly in childhood, ones that may be seemingly insignificant, 
how much impact they have on a person later on in life. It also sets up the relationship between the narrator and her mother, which, as we learn through the course of the book, is a very contentious one and a very complicated one. Can you talk to me about their relationship and how it plays into the ways that the narrator struggles with her identities? Uh, yeah, for sure. So their relationship, as you say, is, is, is a fraught relationship um, and very complex. And the, so part of the tension of the relationship is, is the fact that the mother is an immigrant and the daughter is first generation. For this character, you know, for which identity itself is a struggle, that divide is so pronounced because it's another element, I think, of that unattainability where the mother represents for her this world that she is partly a, wants to belong to and partly does belong to, you know, as a Palestinian, but isn't fully able to attain because she's first generation. And so the mother becomes this almost embodiment of that for her, that's of, you know, just Palestine. The sort of communication or miscommunications that happen between generations, you know, and then add to that um, just belonging to different worlds, basically, is also something that I just wanted to explore how that mother daughter relationship gets complicated by the fact that, you know, they basically come from different places to sort of spend the book reckons like the part of this narrator's journey is to understand her mother and her mother's past traumas and her mother's past wounds and experiences. A lot of which derive from her experience of growing up in Palestine, her mother's experience of growing up in Palestine under occupation in between wars. Um, and to really understand those that she, so that she can arrive at a place of compassion and empathy and eventually, you know, love, I suppose, because I mean, the, the, the relationship is characterized by love. I think that there's fierce love between them, but there's also a lot of misunderstanding for the reasons that I mentioned. I think there's something to be said here around sort of cycles of abuse almost because they're right. Like what you are describing is a set of traumas and abuses that the mother has suffered from being raised in this occupied environment and from the sort of world around her. And it's, it's very hard not to see the narrator's mother as at least emotionally abusive of the narrator herself. Is that something that you can speak to? Yeah, no, cycles of abuse, precisely. I mean, I, I think we often look at things in a vacuum, right, or just as isolated incidents, and um, we don't often see the sort of cyclical nature or just the larger picture of it. And, and part of coming to a place of empathy and compassion and love for a person is to understand cycles of abuse, right? Is to, does it does it justify any form of abuse? No. Does it explain it to some extent? Yes. Um, and part of her time in treatment is to recognize the cycle of abuse that she's a part of. And, and also the way that she herself perpetuates mm. abuse. Because, you know, she does, she can do hurtful things. And that's why, actually. I mean, so, you know, the character can behave in ways that are just really upsetting, I think, and, like, painful to watch and problematic. But uh, as you say, I mean, so cycles of abuse, right? I can't have her exist in that cycle without her being partly a perpetuator of it. 
how do you tell that line as a writer between explaining it and justifying it? And for a character especially who is sort of going through the unpacking of this herself, right? Like she is towing that line as well. How do you approach it? Yeah. I, I, so I think that that's the thing about fiction, right? You can show and not tell. You don't, you don't have to explain. You can just present the scene and in that way. I mean, I think that just showing what abuse looks like um, but also maybe showing the sort of nuances of it, right? Where it's like this, yeah, you know, the mother can be emotionally abusive and well, she is emotionally abusive. Um, but yet it's more complicated than that. Um, it doesn't, you know, there are, there are ways in to this mother that can, you know, as, as you say, they don't justify it, but they at least explain where that, those behaviors and the way that she is with her daughter, where they are coming from. Yeah, they contextualize it. Exactly, contextualize it. So, so much of, I mean, behavior can, yeah, it's, it's, I think that was the goal, is to sort of contextualize abuse and locate it within a larger framework. So I think then that, that raises an important question, which is like, do you see the mother as a villain? Does the narrator see the mother as a villain or is there something else going on here? No, I, so I think that the narrator for the longest time doesn't, I mean, I think throughout almost the narrator does not see the mother as a villain, you know? And so the mother isn't a villain and the narrator doesn't see her as a villain. The narrator wants something from the mother. Hmm. Um, and the, what it is that she wants transcends her view of the mother as being, you know, a villain until there's a breaking point, basically, um, in which she, in which she does recognize and is forced to recognize those darker sides. And she can't linger in that space for too long. I mean, like, so the other side of recognizing like the darker sides and accepting them and like forming boundaries um, Mm -hmm. so that you're not a victim of them. I think the other side, at least in this case, is to come to a place of compassion, you know, while also protecting herself. Um, And so that's sort of the dual goal is to, yeah, recognize and protect herself um, and to also try and remove herself from this cycle of abuse, mostly so that she doesn't perpetuate it, um, but also to find compassion because, because of the fact that like her impulse is to want to be so close to the mother. Mm. <laughs> um, and so in this way, she can, I think, maintain a certain closeness by forging empathy, but also have a healthy sort of recognition of what, you know, of the fact that this is abuse. It's like <laughs> a means, yeah, it's like a means of her, she finds a way to get that connection that she's looking for that doesn't rely on the mother doing anything. Exactly, it, exactly. It's a way to um, keep the mother close to her heart without allowing her to hurt her heart. 
Hi, this is Alex Ferrer. I'm going to have a salsa show, Calamarin Salsa, that will be on Tuesdays from 10 to midnight. I've been in Santa Cruz 35 years. I worked uh, mostly in the legal system, lifetime music lover. I think radio, community radio is very important, especially uh, we have a vacuum in the area now, and uh, we hope to fill it and to and, you know have people enjoy and be exposed to different kinds of music. This is Story Behind the Story. I'm your host, Clara Shirley Appel, and my guest today is Aina Arafat. So, changing tacks a little bit, in another interview you said, being part of a diaspora could often feel like being part of nothing. What did you mean by that? Well, what I suppose what I mean is that it's, um, so when you're a part of a diaspora, you don't belong to the, you know, the home country fully, and you don't belong to the adopted country fully. And so by virtue of neither belonging to either fully, you don't feel, you don't necessarily feel like you're a part of both. You feel, you can feel like you're a part of neither. Like you're, you're in that part of the Venn diagram that's its own circle that's separate from, you know, either side. And I mean, I think that that really is, that applies across diasporas Hmm. where um, you don't feel a part of either. Um, you feel like you're in this strange in-between place that um, you don't have, you're not entitled to claim a sense of ownership or belonging to either place. So that's what I'm, that's, I think what I'm speaking to when I say that you feel like a part of neither. Um, and of course, in the case, you know, in that first, in the scene, in the pages that I read, like the, the fact that the mother has an innate understanding of things that the character has to receive through her mother, but doesn't herself necessarily um, have access to because of the fact that she's not, she doesn't fully belong to the place. Yeah. I mean, I've spoken to people who they say like when they are in their home, like that's if they're Palestinian, like I am, they'll say like when I'm in Palestine, I feel, I feel so American in Mm. some way because people other me. And when I'm in America, I feel so Palestinian because I'm othered there as well. So like people see you as an outsider in both places. You know, you don't go to Palestine as a Palestinian American. Like you don't, you're not received as a Palestinian. You're received as an American. When you're here in the States, you're not necessarily received as an American. You're received as like an Arab, right? So it's, that's part of the, I think part of that feeling of non-belonging. Yeah, I'm really interested in that notion of uh, not feeling entitled. And uh, I think that that's a feeling that a lot of people who are bisexual, who your character also, it's your character also is, Mm -hmm. also experience that feeling of not being entitled to really call themselves queer, but (laughs) not being straight. Um, Can you talk about that? Do you feel like, like, is it a coincidence that she is both bicultural and bisexual. <laughs> no, it's it's no coincidence that she's both bicultural and bisexual. Um the I mean so as you, so being bisexual exactly it's it's this um you it's this weird alienation within um it's an alienation because one doesn't feel that they can claim or it is entitled to claim is entitled to belong to like an LGBTQ community because it's just like, you're not gay enough in some way. Right. And you're certainly not straight enough either. 
So you're also in this in-between place. I think that in the book, the character is really alienated from any kind of queer community. And even when, you know, she tries to approach that, she, I guess, is filled with a lot of fear um, because of the fact that she's, I mean, she's self-alienating in some way, but she's also alienated as virtue of being in between sexually as well, right? As being bisexual. So, so yeah, it's, it's no, it's another level of in-betweenness in which identities um, overlap and create a feeling of just not belonging. So, yeah. One of the things that I found really sort of starkly stood out to me too, is the fact that she doesn't have a community of queer Palestinians or queer yeah. Palestinian Americans that she can that she's really a part of or that she can go to. That's right. And part of the reason that she doesn't have that community is because she's so full of self-loathing that she has she struggles and and is I mean also struggles with like internalized homophobia such that she doesn't she doesn't feel a sense of belonging to that community because of the fact that she's full of shame about that part of herself. It also derives from, you know, that, that in-between of being bisexual and not feeling like she can, she's entitled to belong to that community. And also her own sense of like, just the own, the way that she self-alienates, you know, even yeah. in her like career choice. <laughs> so she's, yeah, on her own island for a lot of the, a lot of her life and a lot of the book. How do you see those identities being bisexual and being bicultural as interacting for her? Hmm. Well, for in one way, they interact because one part of her biculturalness is far less accepting than the other part of hmm. um, of her of any form of like sexual, I guess, of, of bisexuality, basically, right? So, right. like. The tension there between her biculturalness and her bisexuality is the fact that, like, as a the Palestinian part of her is unaccepting of the bisexuality of her bisexuality, and that is, you know, obviously one of the or one of her struggles, I suppose, is to, I think, or one of the main obstacles for her. Um, and then the other way I suppose that they inter- interact is precisely, it's just another, you know, I, I think it's another level of messiness in her life where mm-hmm. it's like, you know, being, it's a tension that's not reconcilable and the tension that's not reconcilable creates interesting contradictions. And I think interesting situations that she will find herself in and you know just presents moment they it offer it, it lends it creates room for some moments and storylines that are really I think not only not unusual just as like just as much as like unique I guess because that messiness isn't reconciled so I think that's a really a really good segue into something that I that I personally found very interesting. This narrator struggles a lot, as we've talked about, with sort of internalized shame around all of her identities. And that is very messy. It comes out as love addiction. And there have been some readers who have expressed concern 
that in portraying the narrator's struggles with love addiction, it plays into stereotypes around bisexuality. Can you speak to that? Is there something that you take from those critiques or those concerns? How would you want to respond to them? I mean, I actually think that it's so, it amazes me to think that by presenting one one character within a, like who happens to be bisexual and also happens to have this pattern of love addiction um, to imagine like no part of me as a writer would have ever imagined that I would be speaking for all you know bisexual um, people. You can't represent every variation of what a bisexual person could look like in one novel. You can only present one variation right. of that and of course in this case her bisexuality is also complicated by her biculturalism and I was really one of my main you know one way I think of responding to cultural shame or cultural unacceptance like in the case of in her case you know being Muslim being Palestinian and having both her religion and her culture deem queerness unacceptable um, her response is to, this is what her response looks like, right? It's, it's, a, it's, right. it's, this is how her, she internalizes that homophobia that's coming at her. And she, the way that it's projected outward is really destructive in her case. Right. And yeah. so this is just one human, um, example of how a person could respond to external homophobia. And, you know, it doesn't represent all the different possible responses to that. One, another person could reject that homophobia and feel a sense of pride and, you know, enter into healthy relationships right away. Um, but in her case, you know, combined also, I think, with her personal history and sort of trauma and, I guess, abuse, like, this is how it manifests. So, yeah, I never would think to, I never, I mean, my whole goal was to subvert narratives, dominant narratives and stereotypes. For me, as a bisexual person myself, right, like I go into this and I, I see a lot of these conversations. There's a lot of fear in the queer community, I think, about portraying our messiness, about yeah. uh, portraying the ways that we maybe, I mean, sometimes the ways that stereotypes do reflect, um, if not our actual like deep-rooted fundamental beliefs, some of the internalized beliefs that we've taken and the way that that impacts us and that it hurts yeah. us. And I, there is a lot of pain there. There is a lot of internalized homophobia um, in our community. And it does seem like it's important to discuss that. However, yeah. there is so much pressure to present only the perfect view. Do you yeah. feel that? And where do you think it comes from? Of course, it comes from the lack of narrative. There's, only, there's so few. I mean, I feel that I felt that always as a Palestinian, where like you mm. have to present in any external presentation of Palestinian, this has to be 100% positive because it's like you cannot, you know, we're already so maligned in, in the media and, and just misrepresented that like you don't want to quote unquote like add to that, right? At the same time, like part of, I think, yeah, subverting those um, depictions is by presenting a fully rounded, three-dimensionalized version, not some like 
glorified or even victimized version, right? So that's, you know, I think it's the same is true when it comes to queerness. And I think that the way around this problem of, um, I guess what we're talking about, is, or this pressure, is that we need a proliferation of narratives. They just need to be way more stories. Because of course, like, you know, you don't, if there are plenty of stories about like, you know, a straight white person, like, and nobody is worried that you might misrepresent somebody who's straight and white and such, and as such, like change, you know, shape people's views around what a white straight person is, because there's so many different narratives around that feature that kind of person, right? And so because there are so few that feature marginalized characters with marginalized identities, there's so much more pressure, but not no one story can tell all the stories. So there need to be many, many, many more stories. And I feel as though now there has been a prolif- more of a proliferation of stories um, that feature like gay and bisexual characters and trans characters. And I think that's really fantastic because it creates room for more varied narratives in which you don't have to, at the same time, be a spokesperson. You can just tell a story. Hmm. So... On that note, are there other queer authors or Palestinian American authors or the confluence of that who you are inspired by or who you would recommend to people who would like to read more? Sure. So, I mean, Rhonda Gerard is a queer Palestinian writer whose work has been inspiring to me and meaningful. Um, And, you know, uh, George Abraham, who is a queer Palestinian poet, his work has been really meaningful to me as well. Uh, in terms of queer writers, like there have been a lot lately that have been really just influential to me. Uh, Meredith Palazan, who has a memoir out called Fairest about her experience as a trans woman of color, is really, um, you know, I actually we were in a writing group together. So we, we, I think we're, it was kind of nice the way that we were able to share work and I guess derive a lot of strength and inspiration from one another. And then who else? Um, I mean, there are um, Garth Greenwell, Carmen Machado, T. Kara Madden, like all of these writers that have in the last few years really um, pro- helped to proliferate these narratives, I think has been, you know, really helpful. And yeah, I think uh, just thinking back to what you're saying, I think tra- having to having to portray like Arab characters or queer characters all- in a certain light all the time. Um, and have them be like sort of paragons of representation is its own form, I think, of oppression, to be honest, like, because it limits what you're allowed, what you can write, and what you're allowed to do or show or say. And I think that's, (laughs) or be precisely. Yeah. So you talked a little bit about this earlier, but the title You Exist Too Much is very evocative. What does it mean to you? And why, of all the lines in the book, did you choose this one for the title? You know, I chose this line because it speaks to both levels of this character's, um, I guess, both realities that she faces on a daily basis and um, just both levels that the book exists on, which is like that personal level and then the collective cultural level. But I I chose that line to really get at, I, I suppose, the heart of her struggle, for one thing, which is this impulse to exist less, you know, for some of the reasons that we talked about. I think it just, 
really contextualize it, it really gets to me it really gets at the complexity um of the ver of all the themes and it's almost like the intersection in some way or the nexus of all the mm. themes that are happening in this book on the level of like identity and culture and sexuality um and it's just something that so many people that are you know in between or that are you know grappling with identity in some way i think can relate to and so that's why i chose it as the title so you must get asked a lot of questions about this book from readers what are some of your favorites well so the book the book comes out on tuesday actually oh sorry, so i thought it came I, out a couple days ago <laughs> no, it actually comes out on tuesday so i haven't yet gotten you know, I, 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 I'll get back to you and tell you what some of the questions are that I get. But so far I have. I mean, if you, one question is like, why is she so difficult to watch and so self-destructive, mm. right? And my answer to that is because that's what her this form of internalized homophobia and like internal shame looks like and how it manifests, right? It's not always pretty. And that's the reality of it. I mean, more than her being like, quote unquote, likable, I wanted her to be authentic and, mm. you know, true to her past and like her traumas and her, you know, joys and her like family and her, like all of the things that would shape, how would they actually in reality manifest versus like in some, you know, version of the book in which I had to make her adhere to something likable. Right. Cause that would have been false. Yeah. Um, I, wanted her to do the right thing or to choose a healthier option or to behave in a certain way that I found to be less destructive, but I couldn't control her. I mean, I really genuinely couldn't control her. Um, even if I wanted to, it was, it, the character did really take on a life of her own. And, um, I had to respect that, you know, and eventually I think there are times in which she does. And that's, that's, those are the moments when I feel proud of her. Um, <laughs> So, so yeah, I think that's one of the main questions that I have faced so far. But once the book comes out, I, I imagine I'll face more, <laughs> more questions. Oh, also one other last question is why are the, there's so many sort of flashbacks that are mm. woven in and um, they're not always like explained. And the point of that is to show how, you know, past experiences can have such an impact on one's present self. And I trusted that, you know, just by sort of seamlessly weaving them in, the reader could grasp the way that um, an incident in the present was triggering a memory in the past. And that memory in the past was meant to speak to the present action. So, yeah. Mm. Hi, this is Nikki Silva of the Kitchen Sisters. Join us every Tuesday at 3 p.m. for a mix of stories, interviews, sound portraits, and unexpected audio works from hidden kitchens, the hidden world of girls, lost and found sound, and local history and voices. Every other week, the Kitchen Sisters presents PRX Remix, a veritable mixtape of works by independent audio producers around the world. Tune in for the Kitchen Sisters. Davia Nelson and I are extremely happy and proud to be part of our new community radio station, KSQD Santa Cruz. This is Story Behind the Story. I'm your host, Clara Shirley Appel, and my guest today is Aina Arafat. I like that you described her as difficult. Um, oh, yeah. 
I sort of was thinking of that friend who is always asking for your advice and you give it and they never take it and you're just like, I want to shake you. Um, Completely. <laughs> <laughs> which is very real to to how it feels to read this book because you're hearing it from her point of view. And so you are sort of getting those kind of post hoc justifications um, right. of her actions as they're happening. But mm -hmm. uh, I love that phrase. I, I love the idea of people being difficult and um, especially of there being difficult women in books. Mm -hmm. Are you drawn to difficult women yourself? Yeah, of course. Totally. Um, in literature, yeah, often. So, I mean, like I, there's a, right, Francois Sagan, I don't know if you've ever read her, but all of her characters are, I think, difficult women um, in literature. And I love that. And same for, I think Lauren Groff also writes women that are like kind of difficult, and you know, not always like, they're just not easy. And I think that's really, I love her writing as well. Uh, so yeah, of course I'm drawn to that because they're just some, they demonstrate more agency <laughs> often on the page. What surprised you when you were writing this book or what did you learn from the process of it? Two things. Well, so what surprised me was the way that the story and the characters all of the characters really took on a life of their own in which, and I never knew what they were going to do next. Like I would stop writing in the evening and I would go or in the afternoon and then I would, you know, go to bed really excited to wake up and write again to see what they were going to do next. Um, and the fact that I just had to follow them and really couldn't, they just had so much agency, which is what I would hope for them. That was really surprising to me. Um, as is like the fact that over the course of writing this, you know, so much of the process involved stepping away and just like letting the book marinate in my mind. And, and then when I would return to it, however long later, just seeing what had changed, which was often a lot or what epiphanies or just kind of insights I was bringing to it. And I think maybe the most important thing I learned from writing the book was that writing a book is really hard. <laughs> um, and I think I learned that like, no matter the quirks and the sort of just wounds and um, qualities that people have and, you know, where those come from, I guess the goal at least for me as a, as a human, I used to try and find that point of like empathy or just that space that allows for love, really. Are there characters in this book that you had trouble empathizing with at first? Yeah. I mean, including, I, I empathized with the narrator once we had a deeper sense of her wounds I empathized a lot with her and then I think some characters that I had a harder time and Greg the who was her who's in treatment with her and who is at first really just abrasive and kind of obnoxious um as well as like her roommate there who is sort of homophobic hmm. um I had trouble empathizing at first with those characters but I, by writing through them I was able to arrive at a place of like empathy and understanding for them just kind of contextualizing their backgrounds and their experiences allowed me to do that and the mother you know? <laughs> I think the mother could be hard to find empathy for at times but then when I got 
to the chapter in which I kind of wrote from the mother's perspective, I, I felt like that's when I really was able to forge empathy for her. So I don't want to be too presumptuous, but um, at least superficially, uh, you share some of the experiences that the narrator has had, not all of them for sure. Um, did you find the process of sort of writing through this and maybe reopening some of your own wounds, was that cathartic? Was it painful? Was it all of the above? Well, so, I mean, so the things that I, you know, it's, it's not, it's, it's a novel, so it's fiction. Yeah. And the things that I do, as you say, like share with her are like, yeah, I'm Palestinian American. And, you know, I, expe- I, I also, I identify with her sexuality and her cultural background. Yeah. And I think that that's, that was a lot of maybe perhaps the impetus to write a book like this as well, was to see that embodied in a character and to see that reflected out back, back you know, a, a queer Palestinian yeah. American, which I've I seen very few of in literature. But the storyline itself, you know, <laughs> none of that was from life. But, the, but it was cathartic to write through some of the scenes that were more just really directly tied to culture, like the issues surrounding that cultural, like in betweenness or the tension surrounding it. Similarly with like, exactly. Similarly with like her sexuality and just like, there was a scene where she's sort of reflecting on a lot of the homophobia that she's faced in her culture. And even like um, maybe even in the States as well. And I think that that was sort of cathartic as well. So yeah, in those moments, there was a catharsis. So you're launching this book, in June, in the middle of a pandemic and um, a great deal of social unrest in the United States and worldwide. Yeah. What is that experience like for you? How does it feel? Well, so the moment I realized that the pandemic was going to affect, you know, um, that my book would be launching during a pandemic, I I felt an immediate calm because I had no control, Hmm. you know? At the same time as that date approaches, I feel... It's, it's hard because it's alienating to be living in a pandemic in many ways. You know, you can't really like, you know, I, you don't have access to your communities, I suppose, as much as you normally would. So that's been a struggle, but there have been other ways that I've found around that and like other ways that I've been able to maintain community even without, even while like socially distancing, but of course the sort of overhanging fear and just tragedy that weighs a lot. Um, and then, you know, the recent protests like have been so what's been happening is, you know, why they've, why people are protesting is like just terrible, you know, the police brutality and violence. And it's been, it's horrific. And at the same time, it's been so inspiring, especially as a Palestinian to see that people are resisting in such great numbers but it's also, a, it's just a dark time, you know? Yeah. And I think I'm just trying to kind of like keep persisting forward and to just carry through in the midst of all of that. <laughs> you know, I guess it's already stressful to release a book into the world, but you add a global <laughs> pandemic and like global protests to it, it becomes a little more tense, but. <laughs> Where do you personally go for comfort in the, in literature, especially? I read a lot of books that I've reread for comfort. Um, I read poetry a lot for comfort, actually, or prose poetry as well. Authors like 
Maggie Nelson is really comforting. <laughs> and um, I really like Eula Biss as well. And I was just reading On Immunity and I found it comforting. Hmm. So a lot of Grey Wolf authors actually, <laughs> that, that press put down some really comforting <laughs> books. Um, so yeah, I, I'll read books that I've read before. That, that comforts me. I can see that. What do you want readers to understand about the Middle East and about diaspora communities? What do you want them to take away from this book and what do you want them to understand more broadly? I mean, I want them to take away the fact that like diaspora communities are made up of human beings, right? That they're, they're not this like monolithic um, entity that can either be like viewed as threatening or, you know, tragic or um, other in some way, but they're just made up of like individuals who have just as much agency and just as much dynamism and just as much like backstory and history and complexity as anybody else. Um, and I think that that's part of what I want to take away, what I would want readers to take away from this book and to also maybe understand their specific experience of what it's like to be a sort of like, yeah, community within a larger community that you don't naturally belong to. I understand that you're working on a collection of essays right now. What can you tell me about that project? It's a collection of essays that goes deeper into exploring the reality of diaspora communities through individual human narratives that are, you know, exist across the spectrum in terms of like backgrounds of those individuals. Um, but they all, for now, most of them are centered around Arab diasporic communities. But there's a lot of variation within, you know, Arab narratives. So, so that's what that is. That's what that collection is. Yeah. Well, Zaina Arafat, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. This has been lovely. To learn more about Zaina or to order a copy of her book, visit zainaarafat.com. Catch Story Behind the Story on the first Friday of every month from 5 to 6 p.m. during the second hour of Talk of the Bay, right here on KSQD 90.7 FM. To share your thoughts on this or other shows, drop me a line at clara at ksqd.org. The Story Behind the Story is produced for KSQD 90.7 FM by me, Clara Shirley Appel. Our sound engineer is Lanier Sammons. He also wrote our theme.